Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. In September 2016, the YWCA Southern Arizona held Part 7 in their Mass Incarceration Community Conversation Series. Today, we're going to hear Part 2 of a two-part program. The Mass Incarceration Series is a multi-year series of free forums focused on providing information, dialogue, and education for community members on the various challenges and policies that affect our formerly and currently incarcerated neighbors. These sessions are designed for formerly incarcerated, family members, loved ones, and everyone interested in learning more about the need for criminal justice reform. This session focused on alternatives to incarceration. What alternatives work and where are they being used now? Can these be expanded and for whom? Today on 30 Minutes, we'll continue with Heather Hamill, founder and executive director of Justice That Works, and Grace Gomez of the American Friends Service Committee's Reframing Justice Project. Heather Hamill is an activist and attorney committed to racial justice and ending mass incarceration. In 2013, Heather graduated from the University of California Berkeley School of Law, where she served as the supervising editor of the Berkeley Journal of Criminal Law. After school, she clerked for Chief Judge Johnson of the Arizona Court of Appeals and practiced law at Perkins Coie LLP, focusing on civil rights and immigration law. She is also a blog contributor to the Huffington Post's Law and Politics pages. Grace Gomez is currently developing AFSC's multimedia storytelling project, Reframing Justice. With Reframing Justice, she drew upon her previous research, Fierce Mamas Rising, to design a program that centers the voices and experiences of formerly incarcerated convicted people and their loved ones. Her commitment to mobilizing the power and knowledge of formerly incarcerated convicted people is informed by her own experience in Arizona's criminal punishment system. Grace holds a doctorate in justice studies from Arizona State University and a master of science in Mexican-American studies and public health from the University of Arizona. Part two of this two-part series resumes with Heather Hamill discussing abolition. So to be meaningful, abolition required fundamentally reconstructing our social and political and economic arrangements. However, in the aftermath of slavery in the U.S., reconstruction fell far short of that. And criminal law and the criminal legal system has played a critical role in reproducing that institution in so many ways. So what we learn from that definition of abolition, if we apply it into the prison and police context, is abolition posits an alternative vision of the world, a world in which cages, concrete and structural cages, no longer exist. And at the core is the belief that the prison industrial complex is fundamentally unjust. So just like you know, abolitionists believe that the institution of slavery was fundamentally unjust and couldn't be made better with procedural protections or the elimination of some of its worst excesses or abuses, abolitionists of the police and prison system also look at the colonial institution and say this too is fundamentally unjust. 
So that's the difference between abolition and reform. Reformism envisions changes that stop just short of eradicating that system. And the belief is that the prison industrial complex can be made just with a few tweaks and a few key changes. So like I said, we, Justice That Works is an abolitionist organization and all the work that we do, that ideology structures the solutions that we put forward. Now that doesn't mean that we don't push for reforms. We do support changes, but they look different. You know, for example, a major reform, especially in response to police brutality right now, and with the advent of so many police shootings being caught on camera, is to equip officers with body-worn cameras. And that is a reformist solution, right? We can equip officers with with body-worn cameras as a response to abuse. The underlying understanding being that keeping police accountable would eliminate brutality. Whereas from an abolitionist perspective, we might begin with the belief that police itself is a violent discriminatory institution. And while we may push for body cameras, that would not be the end goal. Another example would be problem-solving courts or diversion programs. So justice that works, one of our major programs right now is in pushing for community courts, right? The reason why we push for those is because small changes mean real things to people in real time. And it's important to build on those as stepping stones. The difference would be in seeing, for us, community courts are not an end goal. That's not where it stops. Community courts represent an important change and an important paradigm shift and is a step to building up an infrastructure that can ultimately be supportive of people. But that is not our end goal. The end goal would be to see the elimination of some of these systems that continue to create and cause harm. And so that's the difference between abolitionists and reformists. And I think one of the most difficult questions is how to balance the two. How to balance between reforms that are clearly necessary to safeguard the lives of individuals who are incarcerated, to safeguard the lives of individuals who are going to be ground through this system, and also promote a shrinking of the system. Um, And that's ultimately all of our solutions that we push for are solutions that are designed to shrink the system, that are designed to divert resources away from the system in building up something else, in building up alternative social structures, It's also important, one of the reasons that we do this too is because it's important when we're talking about reforms, whether from an abolitionist or a reformist perspective, to not push for changes that create this net widening of the system, right? We don't need the criminal legal system to become more robust and sprawling, or we don't need to reproduce some of the injustices that are being caused by current policies in new ways. What we need is to ultimately shrink it down. So what are the alternatives to police and prisons? Before starting the conversation, I think it's important to note that abolitionist solutions are already being implemented, have already been implemented, whether officially in programs or unofficially across the state and across this country, and they have been for decades upon decades upon decades. So there's a long genealogy to this work 
that's ultimately found in the communities who bear the brunt of the injustices of this system because they have to develop alternative strategies for resolving harm, alternative strategies for their own survival. So many communities will not call the police. Communities who have distrustful relationships with the police or who bear the brunt of police violence will not call the police, will not subject themselves to a criminal legal process or those that they know and love to a criminal legal process because they know what that process looks like and what it means for their communities and what it has meant in their communities for centuries. Uh, for example, there's a story of a woman who I had worked with recently whose mother had grown up in the Jim Crow South where there were no police that they called, in part because police were members of the KKK. There was a woman on their street whose husband was beating her and everybody had known about it. And so the questions that they had to ask themselves were abolitionist questions. What do we do when we can't call the police? How do we solve this issue outside of the criminal legal system? And what their neighborhood ended up doing is a group of the men ended up getting together and actually intervening, but regularly meeting with the husband, regularly meeting with the husband, regularly meeting with the wife to ensure that that didn't continue. And they did that in conjunction with the wife. Up in Phoenix, I was part of a coalition that worked on pushing for the municipal identification cards that the city council ultimately passed. One of the reasons that policy sprang out of relationships, primarily in undocumented communities, where time and time and time again, we were hearing with the folks that we were organizing, we don't want to call the police because we fear being deported. We don't have an ID to show them. We can't call them. We don't want them here. But whole alternative strategies had developed. In South Phoenix, there's a community patrol run by 10,000 Fearless that acts as an alternative to police, that acts as an alternative to prison. So before even jumping into kind of what can these look like, it's important to note that this has been going on for a long time. This has been going on ever since police and prisons first started. And so there's a long genealogy to this work. So then the question is, how do we philosophically conceptualize this? And like I said, ultimately, conceptually, in thinking about abolition, is we have to imagine a different social landscape. Police and prisons cannot exist without a robust social safety net. That's what ultimately has to replace it. I would also add that police and prisons, if we're going to eradicate them, you cannot have the eradication of police and prisons under a racialized capitalist system. And so ultimately it's imagining a completely different economic, political, and social relationship that posits how do we provide for one another? How do we care for one another? When harm is caused, right? How do we handle it in a way that doesn't reproduce violence? reproduce harm. So that's ultimately what abolition looks like. And I think in talking about this, one of the most common questions is, well, what would you do? What would you do without police and prisons? And hopefully I've given some examples of people who have already answered those questions, but that's an ongoing question that we have to consistently ask ourselves. And it's not just what would we do without police and prisons, but what is the world that would have to exist that would allow for that possibility? And what would we need to build up? What infrastructures would we need to develop? 
What changes would we need to make personally and collectively? And that's the abolitionist question. So what we would like to urge is a breaking with that normative system and power structure. That soul sickness that you feel when you read about yet another black American murdered by police, or when you see the stark racial disparities within our punishment system, that is evidence of a break occurring inside of you. That's a shift and an important one. So transformative justice begins with breaking and making common cause with the brokenness of being and existing in our imperfect world. So in other words, there are no answers except the imperfect ones that we create, but we have to create them on our own terms and outside the logics of that normative order. I don't have a prescription, neither does Heather. What I have is the work that I'm doing at AFSE. It's the piece of this mess that I have chosen to pick up and pour all of myself into with my time, with my energy, my talent, and my commitment. I choose to attack the walls every day that I'm able to. And I know that I can't fix this, and I'm not trying to. I'm resolved to live being broke. Jack Halberstam calls this debt, and I'd like to tease that term out a little bit for you. So when you think about debt, pretty much all of us have it. <laughs> might be credit card debt, might be student loan debt, mortgage debt, medical debt. And bound up in that debt is a giving and a taking. Debt signifies ownership, a house, a car, an education, wellness. But many of us know that frequently you don't arrive at the point of ownership. Debt can't be paid off most of the time. And it's this economy that has been naturalized. People are afraid to move in a different direction, even though it doesn't serve 99% of us. Even as it exploits us, even as it disorganizes and marginalizes entire global communities. However, instead of this idea of debt, can we reorder ourselves around recognition, acknowledgement, accountability, caretaking, community, and gratitude? Can you think about debt and broaden your understanding or apply that concept in this context that you wouldn't necessarily relate it to, to that idea of a breaking occurring? For example, a debt is owed to people of color in this country, and it's a debt that can't be paid, and it can't be fixed. The only solution is to tear down that structure and begin again. This system is unraveling, and as it unravels, new questions are born. The breaking down means that there's an opening for us to create, to dream, to imagine a different way forward with different leaders, different models, and different intended outcomes. Creating is not the same as providing answers because the answers are unknowable. So what the system Heather and I have signaled to asks of all of us, but more so people of color, 
is to be satisfied with two things. One, the denial that anything was ever broken. And two, that we deserve to be the broken part. So instead of working to fix unfixable structures, we tear them down so that they no longer obstruct our gaze, so that we can find one another and see beyond what currently exists and access what lies beyond. You're listening to Grace Gomez and Heather Hamill speaking at a panel discussion entitled Alternatives to Incarceration, the seventh in the YWCA Southern Arizona's Mass Incarceration Community Conversation Series on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. So how many of you guys have watched the film adaptation of Where the Wild Things Are? Anyone? No? Have you read the book, the children's book? (laughs) Oh, goodness. I encourage you to watch the film after this presentation. In the film version, Max journeys to the wild that exists beyond the comforts and safety of home, that home and safety that was organized for him by his parents. He leaves that home, and he finds a world where everything is lost, it's lonely, it's chaotic, but it's also possible. There's possibility in that world because it's wild. The beasts decide that Max will be their king and they choose not to eat him. And Max is inspired and taken aback that these grown beasts want his judgment and they want his rule. After all, in his world, he was a child and his opinion, his ideas, didn't matter. In fact, they were subjugated. Max promises the beasts that he will maintain the wild, that he'll recrack the cracks if they fill up, and he promises in his own way to care for the beasts. He promises to make a new world with the wild. But in the end, Max fails. He can't make them happy. He can't save them, and he can't make a new world order. But that wasn't what was important. What was important was that he saw them, that he found them, and that he recognized in them and in their world that there was potential. There was potential to create and to imagine new possibilities. The beasts, if you recall, were not perfect. They were not what you would think of as safe. They were the rejected, the marginalized, the dispossessed, and those beasts, they're all of us. We're all imperfectly striving to make a way forward. So there's a wild beyond these structures that we inhabit and that in turn inhabit us, but we have to be willing to step into the unknown, regardless of the fear that we might feel. And we also have to be willing to take some of the responsibility that Max shouldered, which was to care for that world, to care for those beasts. Uh, If we acknowledge that our over-reliance on our carceral system and the logics of our carceral system have poisoned our land and waterways, have threatened human and civil rights, 
have endangered safety, endangered our security and our well-being, then as Sange asserts, we all have immediate cause. We all have skin in this game and in figuring this out. And it's important to understand that abolition is not some pie-in-the-sky ideal. Like I said, there's a long genealogy of that being practiced officially and unofficially for centuries. But there are, beyond that, there are collectives across this country that practice accountability outside of our criminal legal system. And I'm going to go through a list. It is not an exhaustive list, but they do have traits in common. These strategies are local and community-based. They're extremely focused in scope. They're all intersectional, led by directly impacted people, drawn from global movements for freedom and justice, such as from the Zapatistas, the landless rights movements in Brazil. So the first is the Audre Lorde Project, which is Safe Outside the System, or SOS. SOS is an anti-violence program led by LGBTQ and two-spirit people of color. They're devoted to challenging anti-LGBTQ and two-spirited hate, not just by the community, but by the police, and they employ community-based strategies, such as organizing and educating local business owners on how to resolve violence without reliance on law enforcement. There's the Umbuto in North Durham, North Carolina, um, which is I am because we are. This is a women of color and survivor-led coalition of individuals and organizational representatives, and they prioritize the voices, analyses, and needs of women of color and survivors of sexual violence in their internal and external work. There's the Hysteria Collective in Portland that works with and supports survivors of sexual assault. This might mean grocery shopping, accompanying them on medical appointments, staying the night when needed. They also organize workshops in the community around consent, and they provide funding for counseling services. There's the Sister to Sister in Brooklyn, which is run by young women of color um, and is an anti-violence coalition spurred by the murder of two teenage girls of color in Bushwick by the police. Sister to Sister responded by augmenting their work to include street theater as community education and awareness, documented police abuse, and developed alternative to police called the Sisters Liberated Ground. There's also organizers who are developing and implementing alternative theories of justice and accountability in some of the most egregious cases. So for example, how many of you are familiar with the Burgess torture cases from Chicago? Okay, I'll quickly go through some of that. So John Burgess was the chief of Chicago PD from about 1970 to the early 2000s. During his reign, it was uncovered that he had, his department had, an official torture program, which was essentially they would kidnap primarily young black men from Southside Chicago and torture them into confessing crimes that they didn't commit. And by torture, I mean waterboarding. I mean feet in buckets of water and electrocuting them torture. So when the community who had known about these programs for years finally started uncovering some of the information that they needed, one, they took this evidence to the UN and got the UN to classify what was happening as torture and then were able to sue the city of Chicago. But in discussing what settlement meant, what justice meant, what accountability meant, they focused on 
again, changing the terminology from crime to harm and focusing on what repairing that harm would actually mean. So the settlement terms that they put forward included things like free mental health clinics in the communities that were most impacted that would be available to entire communities, but particularly to the individuals who had been victims of that torture program and to their families. It included reparations paid out to those families, and those reparations were paid out to those families. It included monuments built in the city of Chicago dedicated to the survivors of the torture program. It included including information about the torture program or a lesson about the torture program in all eighth grade curriculum in the state of Illinois, and it included important police reforms. So in addition to these unofficial abolitionist strategies that have existed for centuries, in addition to the official programs that are starting to implement them, we also see alternative notions of justice popping up. Anytime communities are forced to ask, what does accountability look like? What does justice actually mean? So where's the joy? in all of this mess. My friend and colleague, Dr. Megan McDowell, in her paper, Who Do You Protect? Who Do You Serve? Reimagining Public Safety, writes, play creates conditions to relieve stress and tension. And in doing so, play builds a different affective economy whose currency is laughter, kinship, and trust. A public safety campaign based on the notion of play would read block parties, not jails. Safety and justice requires a radically different expression of sociality that depends on daily practices of study, activating care via support, connection, communication, and play, as in joy, communion, and community, rather than walls cages, and banishment. So you'll see on your chair, or the chairs around you, a card. We'd like you to think about everything that was shared tonight. And then think about the cages that are most relevant to you, or the work that you do. And then answer, if not prisons, what? Maybe it's quality health care. Maybe it's poetry in community gardens. Maybe it's clean water. Maybe it's education. And write your answer in in the blank. And thank you. Thank you. That was Grace Gomez and Heather Hamill speaking at a panel discussion entitled Alternatives to Incarceration, the 7th in the YWCA Southern Arizona's Mass Incarceration Community Conversation Series with Grace Gomez of the American Friends Service Committee's Reframing Justice Project and Heather Hamill, founder and executive director of Justice That Works. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. This has been part two of a two-part program. All of the audio for 30 minutes can be found at kxci.org under the Programs tab.